You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 257, The French Army in America. Now, back in episode 246, we discussed Lafayette's return to America from France. Lafayette had arrived in Boston in late April of 1780 and made it down to General Washington's headquarters at Morristown, New Jersey, by early May. The young general from France was pleased to announce that a French army would soon arrive to support the Continentals in a final push to defeat Britain. General Washington, of course, was elated with the news, but also concerned since his army had fallen to only a few thousand men. The Southern Army had been captured at Charleston, and the state seemed in no hurry to send new soldiers. Further, the army did not have the food or supplies to take care of the few soldiers that they did have. Washington spent the next few months desperately trying to build up his army for a major campaign with French cooperation during the summer of 1780, but the men and resources simply were not there. The news of the arrival of the French army spurred him to do whatever he could to prepare, but there wasn't much he could do. Leading the French army was Jean-Baptiste Donation de Vumir, better known as the Comte de Rochambeau. Lafayette had requested command of the army, but the Continental Major General had left France as a captain in the French army. The King of France was not going to turn over an entire army to a kid still in his 20s, no matter how impressive an impact he had made in America. General Rochambeau was an older and much more experienced officer. Like most officers of the era, Rochambeau came from aristocracy. He was the third son of the Marquis de Rochambeau, who came from a prominent military family that could trace its ancestry to officers who had led in the Crusades. His mother came from an important naval family. Although his father had some physical handicap that prevented military service, he nonetheless served the king and was honored as a Knight of the Holy Sepulchre among his many titles. Both of Rochambeau's older brothers died in childhood, so from a pretty young age, he was destined to carry his family's title. Born in 1725, he attended Catholic boarding schools where he received an educational and military training beginning at age five. At 15, he received his first commission as a cornet of horse and began service in the Army of the Rhine during the War of Austrian Succession. The young teenager learned the rigors of combat at an early age and managed to thrive and impress his superiors. He was wounded in battle several times and suffered the same deprivations that the rest of the men faced during the war. By 1747, the 22-year-old found himself a colonel leading a regiment. A couple of years later, the 25-year-old Colonel Rochambeau 
accepted his mother's arrangement for his marriage into another wealthy family. By the outbreak of the Seven Years' War, Rochambeau had risen to brigadier general. He distinguished himself at the Battle of Menorca and was wounded in battle in the German states during the war. By the end of the war, Rochambeau found himself serving as inspector general of infantry and mixing with the very top ministers at the court of Versailles. Since France had entered the latest war with Britain, much of Rochambeau's time had been spent planning for the invasion of England in 1779. After that plan fell apart due to problems and delays by their Spanish allies and an unfortunate smallpox outbreak in the invasion fleet, Rochambeau was looking for something else to do. In 1780, he was a 55-year-old military commander with nearly 40 years of military experience. According to his writings, he was contemplating retirement. The thought of another major military campaign, far from home, did not seem something that he particularly wanted. Unlike many other officers, we really don't know Rochambeau's personal views on the American fight for liberty or other political issues of the day. He did not speak English and knew rather little about America. Rochambeau was a professional soldier who followed orders and fought battles wherever his superiors thought appropriate. The king's decision to appoint him as the head of an expeditionary force to America would be his first independent command. The king's commission directed Rochambeau to command his army separately from the Continental Army. The French army in America would not serve as auxiliaries. His orders directed him to work closely with General Washington and coordinate military actions that would assist in the success of the American cause, but at the same time he was to use his own military judgment in the use of his army. Initially, the king had granted Rochambeau a force of only 4,000 soldiers. After some negotiations, the king increased this number to about 7,500 out of the around 32,000 men who had been assembled for the aborted invasion of Britain. Lafayette had advised Rochambeau to bring all the supplies that they would need while in the field in America. Lafayette noted that the Americans had almost nothing and that the French could not really rely on local supplies while in the field. By March of 1780, Rochambeau was ready to embark on his transatlantic voyage. Unfortunately, the French Navy was not ready. All the troop transport ships had been used to ship another army to the West Indies. After a few weeks of scrambling, the ministry managed to find enough ships to cram about 5,500 soldiers aboard. They had to leave behind another nearly 2,500 men who would have to join them on a second voyage. They also had to give up on the transport of any horses. The fleet set off for America at the beginning of May. The winds and weather forced the fleet to take a longer route so that they were still at sea after two months. Along the way, the fleet encountered ships that brought news that the Continental Army had fallen at Charleston and the entire Southern Army had been taken prisoner. The Americans had lost almost as many soldiers in South Carolina as Rochambeau was bringing to America. The French also learned that General Clinton had returned to New York and was preparing a greeting of his own when the French fleet arrived. Now, the officers had known of their destination, but the French soldiers had not been informed until about seven weeks into the voyage. The men cheered when they heard the news. In part, this may have been because of the French feeling toward American liberty, but a fair amount of the celebration may have been 
because they realized they weren't headed to the West Indies, where tropical diseases were known to decimate European regiments. On July 11, 1780, the French fleet arrived in Newport, Rhode Island. The British did not contest the landing. They had abandoned Newport in late 1779 in order to consolidate forces in New York ahead of the Charleston Offensive. The people of Newport at first greeted the French fleet a bit tentatively. No one was really sure what an occupying army would bring, even if it was allied with the U.S. Even Continental soldiers and militia were known for taking what they needed from locals out of necessity. Although the French were now allies, the people of New England had been fighting the French as longtime enemies as recently as only 20 years prior. Only two years before, in 1778, the French had abandoned an attempt to recapture Newport from the British, and this had threatened to create a deep hostility between the two armies, which Washington and Lafayette had to work overtime to patch up. The locals in Newport had little to offer their French guests. The town population had been less than 10,000 before the war, and the years of British occupation had caused it to fall to less than 5,000 hardly enough to support 5,500 French soldiers and thousands more sailors. The British had largely destroyed Newport on their way out in 1779, and the town had few resources to rebuild. Many buildings were still sitting there as burned-out shells. Many of Rochambeau's soldiers were sick with scurvy from a difficult 70-day journey to America aboard overpacked, cramped vessels. Rochambeau received reports that 2,300 of the French soldiers and sailors required hospital rest following the voyage. Rochambeau, though, proved that he was not just a career military officer. He also knew how to act as a politician. He began meeting with local leaders and assuring them that the French army would not abandon them again, that they were ready to pay in specie, that is gold and silver, for whatever they needed, and that they would remain good guests while stationed in the city. The men set about repairing buildings for use, and they brought much welcomed hard money to pay locals for whatever they needed. Within days, that local support began to show. The town council called for a night of illumination of candles in all the houses to celebrate the arrival of their allies. With local support, the French army of 5,500 men settled in and around Newport. General Rochambeau, however, still had to worry about a British attack. The main British army at New York was only 150 miles away. A short sail up the coast could have the enemy upon them within days. Newport's defenses were a mess, and a large portion of the French army, as I said, was in hospital following the difficult sea voyage. Rochambeau began writing letters to Versailles, noting the difficulties he encountered. The American economy was in freefall with the Continental Dollar virtually worthless. The Continental Army appeared to consist of only a few thousand men who were starving and in rags. General Washington seemed unable to draw in new recruits, and part of the American Army that they did have was going to need to move south in order to replace the army that had been captured at Charleston. British forces were in control of Georgia and South Carolina and seemed to be on the brink of taking North Carolina. George Washington had not yet traveled to meet Rochambeau. Many historians have argued this delay was because Washington was embarrassed that he had no army to fight alongside the French. At this same time, Washington was writing letters to officials in Virginia 
saying that they needed to be aware of the, quote, totally deranged situation of our affairs, of our distresses, of the utter impracticability of availing ourselves of this generous aid, by which he meant French support, unless the states would rouse from their torpor that had seized them. The New England militia turned out in force to supplement the French forces, commanded by General William Heath. But Rochambeau saw them as an army of beggars. The militia needed guns, tents, clothing, provisions, etc. Everyone was looking to the French army to serve as quartermaster for all the Americans. Rochambeau's letters to French officials back home essentially said that they needed to send more soldiers, ships, arms, and money to win this fight, and that the Americans could be counted on for almost no military support. But all of those were longer-term issues. Right in front of him was the danger of a British attack before the French were prepared to defend themselves. To take some of the pressure off his new French allies, Washington was eager to engage in some activity that might distract the British in New York. He didn't have the resources for anything close to a full-scale attack, but he did order General Anthony Wayne to launch a raid on Bull's Ferry in New Jersey. Wayne took two regiments of Continentals from the Pennsylvania line, along with the 10th Regiment, as well as a company of dragoons and four pieces of field artillery. Their goal was to capture a blockhouse at Bull's Ferry on the New Jersey coast, just across the Hudson River from New York City. A small unit of 70 Loyalists held the heavily defended spot, which kept open a river passage into New Jersey from Manhattan. The guard also protected an area to the south where the British grazed cattle and horses. While Wayne's force attacked the blockhouse, he sent Major Lighthorse Harry Lee's cavalry to round up the cattle and horses. Wayne's force attacked the outpost on the morning of July 21st. The battle began with the Continentals using their artillery against the defenders who had no cannons to return fire. The defenders put up a defense with muskets. After an hour of no real progress, Wayne's frustrated attackers wanted to storm the defenses. Wayne and the other officers saw that the defenders had built up considerable defenses, creating a tangle of abatis that would take considerable time to break through. Eventually, though, the soldiers just charged, despite the officers' attempts to hold them back. As the officers feared, the attackers got caught up in the abatis and were forced to withdraw after taking heavy casualties. With that, the Continentals gave up the fight and withdrew. The 70 Loyalist defenders suffered 5 dead and 16 wounded. The Americans suffered 15 dead and 49 wounded. British reports estimate that the attacking force was over 2,000 soldiers. The American records don't give a number, but if it was really just 2 or 3 regiments and the artillery, it was probably more like maybe seven to 900 attackers. Even so, that really should have been enough to overwhelm 70 defenders. The Continentals did return with a herd of captured cattle, but failed to capture the blockhouse. That's probably why the Americans want to forget about the failed attack. Instead, we remember it mostly because a British major by the name of John Andre wrote a poem called The Cow Chase, which makes fun of the failed American attack, despite the lopsided numbers. Back in New York City, British General Clinton had largely ignored the raid. He was focused on launching an attack on the French garrison at Newport. Two days after the French landed at Newport, Admiral Graves arrived in New York with six more British ships of the line, 
Combined with Admiral Arbuthnot's existing fleet, the British had enough firepower to overwhelm the French naval fleet, which consisted of only seven ships of the line and a few smaller ships. Graves had hoped to intercept the French fleet at sea. He had left port at Plymouth around the same time as the French fleet under Admiral Dutournay had left Brest. But a storm had slowed up the fleet, and then Graves had gotten distracted trying to capture prizes along the way. By contrast, the French Admiral Ternay had passed up the opportunity to capture any British prizes that he encountered, and instead focused on getting his troop transports to America. In truth, the British probably could have taken Newport in the days or weeks following the French landing. As I said, the French had had no time to construct defenses, and half their men were sick following the long voyage. British General Clinton wanted to attack quickly, but Admiral Arbuthnot opposed it. First, the fleet that had arrived under Admiral Graves was also sick from the long journey and either needed time to recuperate or had to have much of its crew replaced with locals in New York. This ended up leading to a delay of more than a week before the British fleet could leave Newport. By the time the British fleet reached the site of Newport on July 22nd, the French fleet had had time to anchor into defensive positions in the harbor, where its cannons were supplemented by artillery batteries on land. Admirals Arbuthnot and Graves discussed the matter and decided they would not attack until Clinton brought up his army to supplement their naval attack with a combined land assault by the army. Clinton had been ready to move, but the Navy had not supplied him with the necessary troop transports to cross Long Island Sound into New England. It would be another five days before General Clinton had his ships and was ready to embark his army of 6,000 men at Throg's Neck on July 27th. As Clinton prepared to load his army aboard the transport, he received word that the Continentals were amassing an army of 15,000, presumably to attack Manhattan from the north. It seemed like the perfect time to attack, with the bulk of the British Navy up at Newport and with more than half the army prepared to join them. After receiving this news, Clinton had to call off the troop transports and redeploy his soldiers to defend against the possible American attack. Of course, Washington had nowhere near 15,000 men at this time. Clinton's intelligence about the American attack was a ruse. The Culpa Ring in New York had gotten word to Washington that Clinton was preparing to move on Newport. In response, Washington made a pretense of massing a large force and moving it across the Hudson and into a position where it could attack the British in northern Manhattan. He made sure that word got back to Clinton of this new threat while greatly exaggerating his numbers. So members of the Culper Ring helped to spread this disinformation to British agents who informed Clinton of the imminent attack. All of this allowed the Continentals to buy valuable time for the French at Newport to dig in, reinforce their defenses, and convalesce their soldiers and sailors. Washington had also ordered General Heath to bring 5,000 New England militia to Newport to support the French army. This militia army appeared quickly and was ready to assist within days. By the time the British were ready to attack, the French were ready to defend, meaning that the British saw a pretty fair risk that they could be defeated. In letters back to London, General Clinton blamed the failure to attack on the fact that Admiral Graves had arrived too late, that Admiral Arbuthnot had failed to get intelligence on the arrival of the French fleet, and that the Navy had failed to provide timely access to troop transports. 
by mid-August, Rochambeau felt confident enough to send home the New England militia. Although they had turned out quickly, the Americans did not have food or tents for a sustained presence. Rochambeau decided these men could best serve the cause by returning home to bring in their harvests. Instead of a decisive conflict, the British in New York hunkered down into a defensive posture. The French in Newport also began to settle in for what appeared to be a long-term encampment. As of the end of August, two months after the French arrived, Washington remained in New Jersey with what little army he had, still not finding the time to meet his new ally in the war. Next week, we're going to head south again, as General Horatio Gates is tasked with building a new army in the south to confront General Cornwallis. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Vard and TJ Walker. Thanks also to new standard bearers who joined last month, Carl Rhodes, Frank Rausch, Jesse Fernandez, Dana Blankley, Andrew Floyd, and Perry Nichols. You can all look forward to receiving your first monthly flag magnet this month. Also, thanks for a generous one-time gift from Roland Mancini via PayPal. This week, we look to the North again. The simplistic view of the Revolution is that the war was fought in the North from 1775 to 1778, and then in the South from 1779 to 1781. Now, that's true as far as we see with the big battles taking place, But for leaders like George Washington, he was still very much focused on the war in the North in 1780. More and more, Washington saw the war as a test of wills, and a test that the Americans were losing. The Continental Congress did not have the money or credit to sustain a war, and the states were growing tired of supporting it with men and money. Although Britain was distracted by fighting with France and Spain and other parts of the world by 1780, Washington still hoped that a death blow of taking New York would put an end to things in America. So that really remained his focus. Had the French army not arrived in 1780, it was questionable whether Washington could even keep an army in the field. His men were starving and without adequate clothing and shelter. The army had dwindled down to a few thousand men. Now, maybe if the British army had tried to invade New Jersey or New England or something, 
that would have inspired new enlistments and created a new urgency to support the army. But Britain's current strategy in the north of just pretty much letting things sit where they were while trying to recapture the south and fight in other parts of the world meant that Washington was tasked with keeping the northern army a priority for Congress and the states. Now He tried to sell the arrival of the French army as a reason to call up new recruits, put a new infusion of money into the army, and finally just retake New York City once and for all. Instead, political leaders saw the arrival of the French army as a way to let France take on the burden of the war for a while and to give the American people a break. As we will see in upcoming episodes, General Rochambeau was in no hurry to engage with the British unless he could get the odds stacked decidedly in his favor. He was still waiting for a third of his army to arrive from Europe, and he also expected the Continentals to come up with an army that was probably twice the size of the French army. Neither of those things seemed to be happening anytime soon. So, the arrival of the French army kept the Continental Army on life support and led to an impasse that left soldiers throughout the North just sitting around camp trying not to starve to death or die from disease. And since most of this is boring camp life, that's why most of the history books don't cover a lot of the war in the North in the last few years of the war. My book recommendation this week focuses on the French contribution to the American war effort. It's called How the French Saved America, Soldiers, Sailors, Diplomats, Louis XVI, and the Success of a Revolution by Tom Schachtman. It's an in-depth look at the war from the French perspective. The author is a prolific writer of nonfiction, although I think this is his first book about the Revolutionary War era, he published this one in 2017, and he's since written another one about the wealth of the Founding Fathers. For those of us who read a great deal about the Revolutionary War, the French contribution is often a side note. Yeah, France gave us some money and supplies early on, and they helped somehow near the end at Yorktown. This book takes a look at France's much deeper role throughout the entire wartime period, and even a little bit before the war starts, and it looks at the war from the perspective of French leaders. Because of this unique perspective on the war, it's probably particularly interesting for those of us who have read all the more traditional books on the war's history. So, if you're so inclined, take a look at How the French Saved America. My online recommendation this week is actually three articles that you can find on archive.org or JSTOR. It's called What France Did for America. The Memoirs of Marshal Count de Rochambeau, Parts 1, 2, and 3. As far as I can tell, it's the first English translation of Rochambeau's memoirs. The total is pretty short, it's maybe under 50 pages, and it's published, as I said, in three parts. These articles were published in the summer of 1917, probably to help stir up American support for bailing out France in World War I. At this time, the U.S. had just declared war against Germany a few months earlier, and the idea of repaying the French for their support during the American Revolution was a major recruiting theme in America during World War I. Because Rochambeau himself wrote the original work on which these articles are based, I find it to be an invaluable primary source on the French perspective of the war. As always, I've provided links to these articles on my website and blog. And if you haven't checked out my website or blog, I do recommend you do so. 
My blog contains a transcript of every episode. It also includes many other books and online resources that don't make it into the recommendation of the week. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. My website is a little different. It contains the most recent information on the front page, as well as other things I think may be of interest to my listeners. The other thing it does is there is a list of every single past episode, so it's easy to click on a link to go directly to the blog episode or the podcast of any past episode you're looking for and gain immediate access to that information. So for that, go to www.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week asks, why was the Tea Act so significant to the colonists? So this question dates way back to the very beginnings of this podcast when we discussed the political issues that led to the war. And I recommend anyone interested going back and listening to those earlier episodes for more details. But to sum up, by 1773, Britain and the colonies had been fighting a pretty open dispute over taxation for nearly a decade. Britain had declared that it could impose whatever taxes it wanted on the colonies, but largely refrained from doing so because they were just nice guys and they wanted to keep the peace. Colonists argued that Parliament had zero authority to impose taxes on the colonies because Parliament only represented the people of Britain. The colonies had colonial legislatures to represent and tax them. Now, many on both sides saw the Tea Act as an effort by Parliament to get the colonies to accept its position. The East India Company had fallen on hard times and had traditionally been taxed very heavily. Most of these taxes were collected in London and then just folded into the price of the tea. Now, the colonists didn't object to this model politically, but it did mean that British tea sold in the colonies was extremely expensive. As a result, most colonists drank cheaper tea that had been smuggled in from the Netherlands. The Tea Act of 1773 removed most of the taxes on British tea and allowed the East India Company to ship tea directly to the colonies without it having to be broken down and reshipped from London. Parliament then imposed a rather small import duty that had to be paid by the recipient in the colonies. The colonies overall would get much cheaper tea, even with this tiny tax added onto it, but the precedent would be set that such taxes were legitimate. Colonial leaders realized that paying this tax and establishing this precedent would mean that Parliament could levy all sorts of larger tariffs in the future. If people paid this tax, how could they be able to argue later that the next tax was not legitimate? As a result, colonists wanted to make sure they boycotted the tea tax in order to keep the principle of taxation without representation from being established as legitimate in the colonies. For this reason, activists in Boston felt they had no option but to destroy the tea that was being imported into their city before the importers could pay the taxes on it. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on social media. I'm pretty active on Twitter, Facebook, and Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. 
One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.